morning. Big day today, I realize. Everybody's in good mood now. That's where, that's where I want to be right now. <laughs> I, I, I hope it all turns out as you wish it. And this evening is just wonderful for you. This morning we're going to continue in the parables of Jesus, uh, simple stories during truths. We're in Luke 16, last Sunday, this Sunday, and next Sunday, we're all looking at parables of Jesus dealing with possessions. This is one of the most difficult parables. It is the most difficult parable. So much ink has been spilled on this parable. I'm not going to... uh, try to sort out all the ins and outs and details because the, uh, the message is, is quite clear. So let's read it together. I'm going to begin reading it, uh, verse 1 of Luke chapter 16. He also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him, said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended, literally praised, the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. You could also translate that word shrewdness, thoughtfulness, wisdom, prudence. For... Jesus continues, the sons of this world, this age, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
I was 30 um, when my pastor, William E. Yeager, that I always called Pastor Yeager, when my pastor phoned me. It was a Friday night. At the time, I was uh, teaching in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department for Fresno Pacific at the graduate uh, undergraduate level. And I got a call from, from my pastor where I was also an intern. I'd been trained in ministry. Um, it was a Friday night. Shelly and I uh, coincidentally had just welcomed some, uh, some guests into the house. So we were greeting them when the phone rang. Shelly answered the phone. She held it out to me. Uh, I took it and slipped into a room where it was quiet, and lo and behold, it was my pastor. And that was really kind of a shock. I mean, to me, that was kind of like getting a call from the president. And he told me about a church that he wanted me to prayerfully consider. He wanted me to speak there on an upcoming Sunday. It was in the Bay Area in South San Francisco. And he wanted me to prayerfully consider whether God was would calling me there. Uh, I, I can't tell you, I, I was so excited to be in the job that I was in. I mean, that was a dream come true to be teaching and in biblical studies in the Bible, and uh, I really didn't want to hear this news, but I wanted to be open. I wanted to discern whether God was speaking to me, and so I was open. In fact, when I left the room and joined our company, I said to Shelley, I said, uh, how, do you, how do you feel about going to San Francisco? Thinking you know, if, her, if, her, if she becomes crestfallen, if, her, if a frown crosses her face, that will be a sign, <laughs> not from God. <laughs> but she perked up and said, sounds great. I knew I was had right there. But through the process, through the process, a long process, in, and in the end, I, I got to tell you, I, there was really no incentive. I just had no reason to say no to the voice of God. I mean, it wasn't that, you know, hey, there was a lot of better st things there than what we, what we had in, in our home and in our life and in our vocational work in Modesto, California. We just, God impressed upon me, this is where he wanted us to go. So we sold our home. I sold my dog. I didn't sell him. I gave him away. Um, and we went to South San Francisco. But before we went, Pastor Yeager took me out to lunch. I really appreciated that. Uh, he took me uh, to Long John Silver's. <laughs> I'd never been. It was uh, on McHenry Boulevard, which is very much like Mooney Boulevard here. And I remember at lunchtime after we finished, it was a very nice, uh, a nice visit, a nice lunch. I really appreciated him taking the time. And, and he, it was just kind of a, hey, you know, I want to send you off. And as we stepped outside of Long John Silver's, the sun was bright, the traffic was busy, you know, and there was just that rumble in the air and there was a slight breeze. And we shook hands, and I turned to go, and he said, John, and remember, whatever you do, make sure it works. 
You know, I remember Pastor Yeager for a lot of incredibly wise sayings, but that one didn't strike me as being one of them. But the interesting thing is it stuck with me, and I thought about it. And really, for me, I, be, I came to appreciate that that's really what everything boils down to. If, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, my dad insistently said. And when Pastor Yeager said, whatever you do, make sure it works, I began to ponder that. And I thought, what do I want to work? What do I have to do to give what I want to work every chance to work? When do I stop working to make it work? And so forth and so on. Well, you know what I've found? When I see what matters to me, and I do whatever it takes to make sure it works, I've found other stuff falls into place. Other things start to happen. And often I'm surprised to discover unexpected help and support along the way. And this is really true in my Christian faith too. This is true in my walk with God. So I just want to give you two tips. And you might want to write these down. Two tips that uh, I would summarize among all the things, and there are many that we could talk about, but I don't have time. Two tips that I want to share to you that, with you that have... Uh, risen out of Pastor Yeager's advice, whatever you do, make sure it works. One, to make sure it works, don't wait for others. To make sure it works, don't wait for others. And I can remember times when, you have to picture this, I, I, I wanted <laughs> something to work. I realize this is general, but I wanted something. We, it's so easy to want something to work. And when wishing wasn't rewarded, because that's what sometimes wanting is. It's just wishing. I wish this would happen. And when wishing isn't rewarded, I would find that I would mope, whine, wonder why God, Superman, and planet Earth didn't fix it or bring me what I wanted. And so I, it's a true thing. It really does begin with me. It begins with you. Uh, and so I say to make sure it works, don't wait for others. But as I said, when I do, I find that people come along and things start to happen. It's almost like a catalyst. A second thing, to make sure it works, I'm sorry, do I need to slow down for you? To make sure it works, mind the little things. Mind the little things. Bruce Barton said, sometimes when I consider what tremendous consequences come from little things, I'm tempted to think there are no little things. Robert Brault said, enjoy the little things, for one day you may look back and realize they were the big things. John Wooden, famous college basketball coach, UCLA. It's the little details that are vital. Little things make big things happen. Boy, and you know, whether you're in business, sports, relationships, it's those little things that do make a difference. You know, like in tennis, hey, 
You know, keep that forearm straight. Check your footwork. Arthur Conan Doyle, excuse me, author of Sherlock Holmes, said, it has been an axiom of mine that little things are infinitely the most important. Frank A. Clark says, everyone is trying to accomplish something big, not realizing that life is made up of little things. Epictetus said, practice yourself for heaven's sake in little things, and then proceed to greater. St. Francis de Sales says, while I'm busy with little things, I'm not required to do greater things. And boy, that resonates with me because I've found that big things come out of doing little things well. Dwight L. Moody, there are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us are willing to do little things. And Charles Simmons, true greatness consists in being great in little things. Well, I mention this because if you take verses 10, 11, and 12, which is Jesus' application of the parable, the parable runs through verse 9. And then in verse 10, 11, and 12, in particular, Jesus draws application for his disciples out of the teaching of the parable. And if you squish verse 10, 11, and 12, if you need it all together, Jesus is saying, faithful in little, entrusted with much. Faithful in little, entrusted with much. If I have to unpack that for you, that means when you pay attention to the little things faithfully and you do them as though they were big things, things that really mattered, not things that were insignificant but highly significant, you will show yourself faithful and honest. And you will be granted greater things. To you will be entrusted greater things. Truer things. Things that really matter. And you'll be able to call them your own. It's the little things that count. Have you got it? It's the little things that count. That's why the devil is in the details. Faithful in little goes a long way with God. Faithful in little goes a long way with God. We could say amen right now. But I'm not going to. Because this isn't just about minding the little things. The parable gives us a perspective on life that is essential to appreciating the importance of the little things. And in the parable, the manager is rocked by charges of misappropriation, misuse of funds, the master's funds. What a manager does reflects on the master. And so both 
the, the honor of the master and the honor of the manager is at stake. Can you imagine you who are business people? And that's a lot of us. Or even in school or in any walk of life. Or you in a relationship if you lose your good name. If you are not thought honest and reputable. If you have been deceitful or taken what has been lent to you or given to you for your use. If you misuse that privilege, it will change that person's perception. And in this parable, we have a community that is now drawn in into the dishonesty of the manager. And the man, master says, it's, these charges have come to my attention. And there's going to be an audit. There's going to be a reckoning. And of course, the manager is totally rocked. This is a crisis. It throws him into a frenzy. He says, I don't know what to do. I can't dig. I don't want to beg. What am I going to do? So while he still has the authority as a manager to make decisions with not his own money, but that which is the master's, he goes to the creditors and he reduces their debts. He wins honor for the master and starts to rehabilitate his own reputation and he earns the praise of the master. The master commends him. And Jesus takes this parallel. Now, scholars debate whether whether the manager was dishonest throughout the story or if he had a real change of heart when he was informed that there was going to be an accounting, a reckoning, an audit. And then at that point, he used those powers which were still lent to him to make significant changes. I'd like to think that he reduced the creditor's bills by the amount of commission which would have come to him but we really don't know. But the parallel is clear. This is not an allegory. There's one big idea in this particular case, and Jesus makes it plain in verse 8 and verse 9. He takes this notion of wisdom, of thoughtfulness, of prudence, of thinking about the impact, the effect of the little things we do upon our future, something the manager wasn't thinking about. And when everything was thrown into jeopardy, it caused him to think about the future entirely differently. His life changed, if you will. And Jesus takes this less than shining example to represent the way of the world. The sons of this age, or the sons of this generation, or the sons of the world, it said in verse Eight. And he contrasts it with the sons of light. Now, sons doesn't rule out daughters. It's just a way of expressing here that Jesus is contrasting his disciples or those who are following him, those who have been enlightened, those who have heard his message of the kingdom, that the age to come has dawned, that the kingdom's come. 
There's a new economy, a new way of looking at things. And it's present in Jesus, and he's calling people into this very kingdom. These are the sons of light. But they could be, and he is challenging them not to just do business as usual. And he contrasts that with the sons of this age, quite literally, who are working with what's called unrighteous wealth. Unrighteous wealth, it's called, because the sons of of this age, or those who do not use it for the kingdom, use it for things of no ultimate value or worth or true worth, which is another expression Jesus uses. What I want us to appreciate is this point at which the manager is rocked because that's happened in our lives, that moment, that occasion, when God, so to speak, pulled the scales off of our eyes and our hearts of faith appreciated something that we weren't aware of. And a whole different worldview dawned on us, one with consequences, one with judgment, one with grace, one with inheritance, an internal perspective, one in which Jesus died in such a personal way that we can appropriate it just for ourselves and realize that God welcomes and receives us into relationship with him because of grace, not because of what we do. And that grace changes everything. It changes the way we see people because we now see others the way God sees us through the eyes of his love and goodness and grace through the work of what Jesus has done on the cross. And the church, as we saw in Acts, is brought to life through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Arabone, the down payment, the pledge, the first installment, the very experience of the age to come. It's not, you see, business as usual. It's not me just living the way I always would live But knowing Jesus is out there, for real, it's more than that. Maybe you've noticed in the news uh, how there are so many things that illustrate the plight of the manager. I think of Alex Rodriguez, star third baseman of the New York Yankees. Alex Rodriguez, He has been charged with violating the laws of baseball drug uh, use, and, and as a result, he's been suspended 211 games, which is basically forcing his retirement, the end of everything he's invested his life in. Think about it. Uh, not to mention that he'll be losing $28 million a year. But you see, what I want us to appreciate, if you kind of just, yeah, the, after the disappointment passes, if you identify with Alex Rodriguez, because we're all sinners, right? It's just, 
this exposure has changed the way the world looks at Alex Rodriguez, thinks about Alex Rodriguez. The Hall of Fame is in jeopardy, to be sure. Uh, his good name is gone even before he's convicted. Uh, he may not be helping his cause because in his frenzy, in this crisis, he's trying to rescue his good name, his reputation. That's the kind of experience the manager went through. That's the kind of experience we go through. And listen, an athlete, and I'm just using an athlete as an... The big money is just, it boggles my mind. But it's not... I mean, the money comes with it, but you ask a lot of guys who have finished their careers, and they, they tell you they'd trade the money for the ring. Because it's all about their being validating who they really are, their name, their legacy, their reputation, and now that's all in jeopardy. Did I tell you Alex Rodriguez is a, is a follower, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Did you know that? Well, of course you didn't know that, because I don't know that. But it raises the question, why should it matter? It is disturbing to think that Alex Rodriguez would fall under all these charges and the, have his reputation at jeopardy, if not already slipping away, if he were truly a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we follow Jesus Christ, yeah, it's grace. And there's this uh, spiritual, eternal transaction that takes place, but there's also growth, there's change, there's a different heart within us. And it affects the way we deal with little things, manage little things. We realize there are different futures to be decided, and that makes a difference. Make friends for yourselves, verse 9, by means of unrighteous wealth. In other words, wealth that would just go to ourselves. You know, I'm growing in Christ, even at, even at my young age, and even after so many years of walking with the Lord. You've got to keep growing. The Spirit working doesn't quit working. We don't quit growing. And I've dealt with this parable before, but it got to me again in a new way, the thrust of what Jesus is talking about here. And it affected my week. It changed the way I looked at some things. Um, I, I made some generous contributions to panhandlers this week. I mentioned that in the last service, and between services, someone wanted to make sure I understood that you shouldn't do that because they're going to spend it on beer or drugs or something like that. I know that. But look, here's what I wrestle with sometimes. I have all these justifications. I can even sometimes justify it by the way I use certain verses in the Bible. 
And I, I find myself just backing up with all of my justifications and rationalizations until I get into this corner sometimes. And there's no life in my life. You know, no energy, no risk, no spirit. I have all kinds of reasons as to why I shouldn't do that or avoid those people or they don't, they, they don't deserve it. They haven't worked hard enough or whatever the reason, the color of their skin or any of that. That's just wrong. I don't get that from Jesus. And I thought, you know, I got it. So, yeah, I gave nicely. But I gave in Jesus' name. Tried to make it an opportunity to encourage that person that Jesus Christ cares for them. And I care for them because he cares for me and for them. But the point for me is not just, well, how does it transact? What's the bottom line? Does it all add up? Was it a must? Was it a plus or a minus in the final, you know, accounting of whether that generous gift or that act of grace, did it accomplish what it had to accomplish? And what I'm trying to say is that's looking at it in the wrong way. My heart's at stake. My apprehension of the work of God in the little things of my life is at stake. And it's at stake in your life too. The actual moving of the Holy Spirit. The reality of the kingdom of God in our lives. Sometimes we can let our theology and our Bible knowledge take us right out of the game. Because we're not living in relationship with him. His grace isn't coursing through our veins like the blood of Jesus Christ ought to. That blood that was shed for us on the cross. You know, let's go back in to chapter 14 for just a moment. This is an interesting chapter. It's just two chapters back from where we are. The first 24 verses of Luke chapter 14 are all in a setting. And that setting is a sumptuous banquet honoring a leader of the Pharisees. But what's interesting to me in verse 14, I just, we, we can, we're just going to touch on a couple of things. In verse 14, uh, respecting someone's uh, generosity... Jesus says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. In other words, it doesn't always add up. It isn't a mathematical proposition. And then he says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's that future perspective. There's the kingdom of God. There's the Holy Spirit being poured out on the issue. And then he says in verse 15, when one of those, then it says in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, what I'm just trying to point out in this, in this uh, citation of these two verses is the idea that the resurrection of the just and the kingdom of God can be invoked in the details of 
human transactions and generosity where it isn't thought of in terms of what's the payoff? Will I get out of it as much as I put into it? And the fascinating thing is Jesus goes on to tell two parables where in dinner settings that have been generously prepared, the master of the ceremony, the guy footing the bill, invites his friends, his peers, and they give excuses. I've got this to do. You know, I've got so much going on over here. I can't come. All these excuses that have to do with what? Everyday life, things that have to do with sustaining our unrighteous wealth. And Jesus says, and we're not going to look at the parables, but you can read them, first 24 verses. Jesus says, invite the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. In the economy of people, these are little things. And Jesus is saying, mind the little things. The spouse that you've grown accustomed to, that has become conventional over the years, not a little thing. Coworkers, people you pass on the street, in the marketplace, even those that society tells us don't matter, matter to God. And if you have a doubt, I shouldn't have to argue from Scripture, just look in the mirror, and if you see yourself forgiven, if you see yourself a child of God, there is your justification that all matter to Him. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Here's a beautiful, quick comparison from Paul that really picks up the notion of the sons of this age or the sons of the world contrasted with the sons of light. And by the way, this should encourage you. He says in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this word world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Go out on the streets and just ask anybody walking by if they see the world that way. They won't. If you see the world this way, something's changed for you. Jesus has gotten to your heart. The good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God has been planted. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. You believe there's a God in heaven who created it all. And it makes a difference the way you see the world and see the little things. And that's what he's drawing upon. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, lest the rest of mankind, like the rest of mankind. But, that's what you want to circle right there, but. See, that's not the end of the story. That's not the whole story. There's a big but, which means there's a big contrast. There's a big turn of events. But God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's what happens, though. We camp on that as we should, but sometimes we think, you know what? As someone I know has said, um, I'm just going to do what I do anyway, and then later I'll ask God forgiveness. No change of heart, no change of attitude, no, no difference in the way he sees the world or sees others. But what Paul is saying in verse 7 is, this grace is going to be shown in us, pointing to Jesus Christ, but showing up in us. And if we read on through verse 10, we were created for what? Good works. What you do is who you are. What we do is who we are. This week, uh, I read about the butterfly effect. <clears throat> and that brings me to the final point Jesus makes in verse 13. You can't serve God and mammon. You'll either love one hate the other, be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve them both at the same time. And that's why I have a problem with the prosperity gospel because a lot of people caught up in the prosperity gospel approach is that, hey, God is just here for us and they use God to get rich. You know what the butterfly effect is? Larry Gallegos talks about it. The butterfly effect is this idea, and it's a fanciful idea. Uh, it's this idea that, say, down in the Amazon, a, a butterfly flaps its wings, and it sets in this motion, this chain reaction that affects the future and the world as we know it. That idea really emerged, uh, you know, back in the 40s, it's a Wonderful Life picked up on that very idea because the whole idea of George Bailey not being born changes everything, and that's what the angel showed him. George, your life makes a difference. Can you imagine a world without you? Butterfly. You see? This idea has been picked up by Ray Bradbury in A Sound of Thunder, which was published in 1952. It was the idea set in the future that a guy, a hunter by the name of Eccles, wanted to travel back in time to the time of the dinosaurs because he wanted to kill a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And of course, when he actually had his chance, he was, so, he was just so overwhelmed by the, by the majesty and terror of this Tyrannosaurus Rex that he 
chickened out and he ran off the path, but in the process he stepped on a butterfly which was found after he returned home and back to his present, which is in the future, where he found language and politics and everything had changed. This idea of the butterfly effect was picked up by the Simpsons in their Halloween episode, Time and Punishment, where Homer travels back in time through a time machine more than once to the time of the dinosaurs. And, you know, he does stupid things. And uh, it's because of stupid things that uh, strange things happen. For example, he squashes a butterfly and Ned Flanders becomes ruler of the world. Or at another time, he sneezes and wipes out the dinosaurs, but he becomes extraordinarily rich. He has well-behaved kids, no sisters-in-law, and donuts rain from heaven. But one of the most powerful examples is a true story. There was a poor Scottish farmer working his fields, and he heard cries. And in searching it out, he found a young child stuck in a bog above his waist. And with some effort, he was able to pull the child to safety and saved his life. The very next day, an ornate coach drawn by horses stopped at his little plot of earth and out stepped a well-appointed and dressed nobleman. He identified himself as the father of the son of the boy that the farmer had saved, and he wanted to repay him. And he offered him significant sums. Such was the value of his own son. And the farmer refused. He wouldn't hear of payment. How can I accept payment for doing only what is right? But the nobleman wouldn't stop. He asked to the farmer, do you have a son? And the farmer said, I do. He said, then I insist that you let me educate him in all of the finest schools right along with my own son. He accepted that. And his son went off to school. And over the years, advanced, finally graduating from St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London. More importantly, this farmer's son went on to become known around the world as Sir Alexander Fleming, he who discovered penicillin. The nobleman's son became stricken with pneumonia. Do you know what saved his life? Penicillin. And what was the name of the nobleman? Lord Randolph Churchill. And the name of his son? Sir Winston Churchill. We can calculate big and small, important and not, based on what, what it means to our success. But when we are thinking of the success 
of what God is trying to do, and we have experienced in our own lives through the redemption that so radically changes the way we see ourselves and others, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that changes the way we see the world and people all around us. All the little things are no longer little, because in the hands of God, it can be more profound than a butterfly effect. So I want you to look at yourselves differently and look at the world differently and look at the little things each day differently and imagine not what you can see but what God can see through your act of faithfulness and the transactions that will begin and be continued and go on. We may not see the outcome. We may not see the difference and we may even discourage ourselves thinking "Ah, it didn't matter. But that's not the work and that's not the life of faith. Faithful in little goes a long way with God. We stand. Well, I hope your team wins. But more importantly... You are loved. God loves you. That's the message of the cross. And if you're here this morning and you you don't know that, don't leave here without finding out how you can know that. After I pray, I'm going to be up here in front along with the other pastoral staff, elders, and their wives. If you'd like to pray with us, You'd like to know how much God loves you or what difference it makes. Or take that first step, we invite you to come. Maybe this morning God's spoken to you just like he has to me. You know, he's always speaking to us. But as you try to take a step of faith, maybe you want to pray with us about what that step would mean in your particular experience, your life, tomorrow, or the day after when you're back at work. We invite you to come. Maybe you're moved this morning. You came here burdened because of what someone else is going through. Someone you're trying to help. Something on your heart that we can pray with you about. We invite you to come. Let me bless you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ. We love you and we know you love us. And it is so precious to us to think that you in your countenance, you smile upon us. The sun never stops shining upon us because of your love. But Father, may we not stop shining, smiling, and loving either. In Jesus' name, we praise and thank you. And all of God's people said, God bless you.